Hi there. Welcome to Finding Space with Alex Tyson, the show that celebrates the everyday legends who put in the hard work to become who they want to be and live the life they want to live. For people who understand that when we practice compassion and find wisdom within ourselves, we find success and happiness. Join me in hearing amazing stories from everyday individuals who have found incredible personal and professional growth through varied and, at times, wild methods of self-improvement and self-responsibility. And through their unique perspectives and work, have gone on to better the lives of those around them. From nurturing health to growing your wealth or enjoying the present to crafting your future, no aspect of life is off topic. And hey guys, just a quick note that we recorded this podcast before we rebranded our company from iHealth Saunas to Found Space. So if you hear any references of iHealth Saunas, that's why. G'day everyone, how's it going? Welcome to the Sweated Out Show. Okay, I've been thinking about what to say at the start of this podcast and to be honest, I've struggled. Why? Because today's theme is about increasing the amount of plants we eat and moving away from eating meat. And from my experience, having a conversation around optimal diets always gets messy, whether it's about eating more meat, less meat, more plants, less plants, more fruit, less fruit, you name it, it's always a challenging conversation. There is a lot of dogma around food and frankly, it's hard to navigate. The labels to start with, paleo, keto, vegan, raw, vegetarian, all with their own set of limitations. The culture we're brought up in influences us to believe certain fallacies such as you have to eat three meals a day, protein-rich diets, and drinking milk for strong bones. And tradition within countries that we're brought up in and our, our heritage has us eat certain ways which may not be best for our health either. I'm thinking back to a month I spent in Italy a couple of years ago where uh, the general culture of coffee and pizza and wine is not set up for optimal human health then we each have our own personal experiences which alter how we view foods too some of us eat kale and feel good some of us eat kale and feel horrible we're all at different levels of our health and therefore we each react to foods differently changing the way we eat often leads to challenging conversations with our loved ones family and friends who feel challenged by our empowered choices to improve our diet and unfortunately, as is the way with human nature, often try to shoot down our decisions asking questions like, but where will you get all your protein? Or how long do you think you're really going to eat like that for? And finally, the health industry tries to sell you the benefits of all of the above. (laughs) The noise within the health industry and the greater media about what to eat is crazy. So no wonder we have a challenge navigating what to eat. And no wonder talking about food is often such a defensive topic for people. Hence, I don't have any deep wisdom or insight to kick off today's show. All I want to say is, if you can, listen to your body as you eat and in the hours after eating too. For most people, the average transit time for food from when we eat to when it comes out the other end is 36 to 48 hours, depending on how cleanly you eat or potentially how backed up you are. So when you eat, You're about to start a relationship with that food for much longer than just the experience of eating it. And that food will affect how you think, your energy levels and hydration during that entire time within the body. Not to mention how it can affect us nutritionally beyond that time frame too. So listen to your body throughout the day and notice how the food you're putting in affects you. If you want more from your overall health, vitality or energy levels, 
or if you want to reduce brain fog, minimize bloating or stop feeling sluggish in the afternoon, looking at the food you consume is the ideal place to start. Navigating food can be hard, so hopefully today's interview inspires you to try something new and may even answer some questions you've been asking for a while now. Today's interview is with Simon Hill. Simon Hill runs the well-known Plant Proof podcast, where he interviews scientists day in, day out, to find out the real information to inform our greater lifestyle choices and decisions. He's the author of the book, The Proof is in the Plants, a book detailing the numerous benefits to eating plant-based for our bodies and for the planet. In this interview, we talk about Simon's journey into plant-based health, how humans are not simply a product of our genetics, a plant-based diet for improving brain health and mitigating Alzheimer's, how to create and build a reward mechanism for new healthy habits, making vegan food taste delicious, and lastly, all the benefits eating plant-based has on our environment with a focus to reducing the human race's effect on global warming. This episode of Finding Space with Alex Tyson is brought to you by Found Space. Make your home a place of wellness to live a long and healthy life. Visit foundspace.com.au for more information. And so I give you today's interview with Simon Hill. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, mate. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. I've been excited for this one for a while, so thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be here. I've been very excited to have you on because you are just such a an advocate for something I believe so strongly in. Eating more cleanly, eating whole foods, eating plant-based um, certainly changed my life. Um, certainly changed every part of it. The cleaner I ate, the more my life seemed to improve and the more I seemed to appreciate the beautiful things in life. And after reading through your book, I was just like, man, it's like a Bible, especially for someone who like they perhaps don't have like a good understanding of the landscape of food and nutrition and the environment, the impact those things have. It just laid down the foundations in such a, a beautiful way. And I don't want to pump your ties up too much because I'm sure you hear it all the time. But you know, I was just stoked to, to really come across that and you covered so much. And I want to get into how you research because I feel like you must research all the time. But I wanted to start with how did you kind of get into this space in general and how did you find your life started to change as you started to explore more of this plant-based lifestyle? Yeah, so I guess uh, from a very, very early age, as far back as I can actually remember, Alex, I've appreciated the role of science in our world. And that appreciation came from seeing my dad, who he's now a professor and, and for the last 30 plus years has done research on risk factors for cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. And his research is and still is today looking very much at a mechanism level under the microscope, uh, you know, deep, deep science. And, you know, from when I was five years old, I'd come home and I'd see piles and piles of scientific studies on the coffee table or in his study, or I'd jump into the car and I'd have to move them off the seat in order to get into the car. And uh, so it just seemed very normal for me. And so myself sort of entering the world of science was always something that I envisaged like I could see that that was going to be where I would end up in terms of a career and initially when I finished high school I actually was 
accepted into medicine. And I thought I would go down and that route and become a physician and potentially uh, specialize in some field of, of medicine. But my marks were not quite good enough to get into medicine at University of Melbourne uh, or any of the Melbourne uh, universities for that matter, Monash or any of them. And so I was accepted to go and do uh, medicine down in Tasmania. And 18 years old, I had dreams of continuing to play football with my close friends in Melbourne. So at that stage, I wasn't really prepared to to move states. And so I pursued a different avenue and I uh, applied for physiotherapy, which is a, a very good course, but the marks required a slightly lower. So I was able to, to get into that and do that in Melbourne. And I went down that route of physiotherapy with the mindset that I would graduate and work in sports physiotherapy and start working with elite athletes and and helping them uh, rehabilitate and overcome injuries. And most importantly, helping them get the most out of their body and achieve whatever their goals uh, were. And and I did that and and found that extremely rewarding. Uh, Straight out of university, I started working at a private practice in Melbourne called Pran Sports Medicine Center. And immediately I was smallest fish in the pond and as a new grad, and it was kind of unheard of for a new grad to come into this environment. They rarely had anyone come in and work with zero experience. So I was very, very lucky. And it was a, a fabulous few years working there. And, and at the same time, I was working with elite AFL footballers and I had really fulfilled what was a dream you know from the day that I was accepted into physiotherapy that's what I had my my eyes set on and there I was and I was living that out and uh, through a few different sort of turns I ended up actually leaving physiotherapy and shortly after pursuing the area of nutrition but to better understand that and why nutrition sort of uh, took over for me personally was something I wanted to pursue really goes back to when I was 15 years old. I saw for the first time what loss of health looks like. Right. And we hear like all the time, uh, and I'm sure you may have experienced this yourself personally, or you would know friends who have, we talk about chronic disease and it's very pervasive in terms of It's either affected us or it's affected someone in our family or family friends or whatever, right? It's very rife throughout our society. But sometimes it seems if you haven't experienced that within your family, it almost seems a little bit abstract. And and so when I was 15 years old, I was spending the afternoon with my dad. We were driving around the Yarra Valley, which is a... A wine region, you would be familiar with it. Yeah, I used to, I used to live in Croydon, Croydon Hills. Yeah, so I actually, uh, we were living in Eltham right. at that stage. Uh, so you would know that. It's not too far from Croydon. And we had a like country house in King Lake. So you probably know where that is too. There's some good driving roads up there. Yeah, so my dad had a an MGB convertible. And so we would... On weekends, we would go out driving through the Yarra Valley. We'd stay in King Lake and 
Sometimes it would be the entire family. Sometimes it could just be my dad and I, or my dad and my brother and I. And on this weekend, it was just my dad and I and my brother and, and mum were, were back in Melbourne and we were having a great day. We were going around to all these different wineries and uh, dad always chose the small vineyards so we could have more of an opportunity to connect with whoever the, the winemaker was. Usually they were there and they were very passionate and they were waiting for someone to arrive that they could you know, share their stories with. And my dad really liked asking them lots of questions about the craft. And we spent the day out through that area and we were driving home and I can actually, like I can still remember this this day. It's funny how when something so dramatic happens in your life, those glimpses of that day, they stick in your mind forever. You know, the day before and the day after, I couldn't tell you anything that occurred really. And so we are driving back home and dad started to show through his facial expression that he was experiencing some pain. I could see him kind of grimacing. And I inquired to see if he was okay. And he said that he was experiencing some chest pain. And he kind of reassured me and played it down that it, you know, it, was, it was nothing major. And uh, we ended up going back home and, and into King Lake and we cooked dinner. And then he again reassured me that everything was all right. And so I proceeded to go to bed. And shortly after, I remember hearing some noises in the kitchen loud enough to wake me up. So I thought I better go check if he's doing okay. I went out and there he was. It was very clear by this stage that he wasn't actually doing okay. And he, he no longer could deny that. I could see it written on his face. It was the first time that I'd seen my dad appear very helpless. And I could see the fear in his eyes. And uh, he was out of breath. And he was actually sort of making his way to get the phone. And he had got to the phone and had called triple zero, which is our version of 911 in case there's any international listeners. And the person on the other end of the line asked him if anyone else was there to, to perhaps describe exactly what was going on to get a more reliable sort of account for what was happening. And so that was me. And uh, so I was describing what had happened and uh, over the last few hours and how long he had been experiencing chest pain for and what he was experiencing right now. And they said, look, based on your geographical location being in King Lake and the nearest hospital, and at least at this time, this was 20 years ago, uh, we need to send a helicopter because the closest hospital is quite a, a while away. And I should add that this was very much out of nowhere. So my dad on this day was 41 years old. He had zero health problems or diagnosed health problems. He was not taking any medications. And for all intents and purposes, he was a representative of the typical Australian father. He was living the typical Australian lifestyle in terms of diet, in terms of you know moderate sort of alcohol consumption, nothing crazy. Uh, he wasn't obese, but maybe he was carrying a little bit of extra weight because he was working so much and making ends meet with family and two kids. And so 
this really was out of the blue. He was definitely not someone that was sort of relying on the healthcare system and his family were already worried about his health. That wasn't the case. And so for me, it was very frightening because, you know, only a few hours earlier, we were having a great time as we always had. And so things were going downhill pretty quickly. And the helicopter came and they scooped him up off the ground and attached him to oxygen and heart rate monitor, checking his vital signs, et cetera, and quickly then wheeled him off to the helicopter. And they said to me that I couldn't fit in the helicopter. And so I would follow by road in an ambulance uh, for what ended up being, you know, felt like an eternity to get to the hospital. Uh, So there's a lot of unknown at this stage. And by that time, I'd called my mother and, and said, you and, and James, my brother, you you probably should come to the hospital. This is what's happening and you better come quickly. And so they made their way over as well. And we got to the hospital. There was a, a long wait. And the doctor, who I believe now uh, would have been the cardiologist, he came out and said to us, we have saved your father's life. And that was the single most important thing for us in that moment. And to be fair then, I actually didn't realize how lucky he was because sudden cardiac death is the number one cause of death in Australia. It's the leading cause of death from cardiovascular disease, which is the leading cause of death in the world. So most people are not that lucky. They don't get a second chance at life. So speaking of what am I grateful for? Uh, I'm grateful for the medical system and the healthcare system that we have in this country that often we could take for granted because not every country has that. And so he said to us, look, your dad will, he will be on some medications for likely for the rest of his life, but we've saved his life. And so you're still going to enjoy many more years with your dad. And so that was incredible. Um, The next day, he sat us down as a family when my dad was in a bit more of a a better sort of state of health to have a family conversation. And he'd taken my dad's history. And interestingly, and this is not uncommon, my dad's dad had also had a heart attack, my grandfather. And so the cardiologist said to my brother, and myself, my brother was uh, about 17, 18. I was 15. Uh, he said, look, you, you boys are nearly you know, young adults and this cardiovascular disease runs in families and there is a genetic component. And so you will need to be screened as you're getting older and this will be something that you need to keep an eye on. And that's not bad advice at all. That's actually really good advice. The problem is the conversation ended there. And look, to be fair to that cardiologist, perhaps in that setting, there wasn't enough time. Uh, you know, And so he was just giving us what he thought was the most important critical information at that time. However, for many years, I walked away from that thinking, well, I've been dealt bad genes. This is a bad, I've been dealt a a bad card here. 
And so if my dad has had a heart attack at 41 and it came out of the blue and he was living a lifestyle like everyone else, how can I expect to have a different result myself? I felt disempowered that, you know, that was likely my health fate and my brother did too. So what happened was, you know, in my mid twenties through a sort of sequence of events, it was brought to my attention that nutrition actually plays a huge role in our health fate and our risk of these chronic diseases. And that was enough to spur me on to dig a little bit deeper and then ultimately go back to university, do a master's in nutrition, uh, which has then you know, led to everything that I'm doing today. Wow. <laughs> Man, what an experience. I mean, I'm thinking like how, how they even land a helicopter in King Lake and what that must have been like to, like to see your dad helpless yeah that's just like a really scary (laughs) scary thing to experience i resonate with your story my dad has uh, he's come down with alzheimer's and similar thing like unless you're close to it unless you've had an experience with sort of chronic diseases developed doesn't impact them they perhaps don't want to make change um and that can be the hard that i find is one of the hardest things right it's i think there are people that read my book who have someone like you in their family or like me or you know a family friend that has lost their health and when they read this book it can be very empowering and they can connect with it and want to act immediately it's a little harder when you're speaking to someone who perhaps is in their early 20s in good health hasn't experienced any of that loss of health and it can be harder to get that person to sort of prioritize their long-term health and be inspired to make changes now and my main message to someone who is in that position is you know don't wait for pain be it pain that you experience or someone in your family just understand that if we're simply repeating the same lifestyle habits as everyone else in our society we can't expect different results you know they're saying i love is uh, why does obesity run in a family because no one runs in that family Mm. right yeah you know we're all a product of this culture that we're brought up in Um, and in Australia like you said with your dad it was eating the standard Australian diet you know drinking a little bit much and and not putting our health as a priority yeah I think that's you know and and I can see how that happens particularly for young parents you know, priorities shift and they change and sometimes we can forget about our own health. But I think it's important wherever we can within our means to make the best decisions possible Uh, because often we're prioritizing, you know, the health of our children ahead of ourselves. But that's a two-way street because, you know, our children want us to, as parents, to still be in good health when they're teenagers and in their early 20s and to still be around and be playing an important role in their life then. So it's a tricky balance. And, you know, I don't want anyone to think that genetics don't play a role because they certainly can and they can predispose us. Like, for example, for me, I would be predisposed to cardiovascular disease, no doubt. But the research is very clear that like you said about just then about obesity is that by and large these diseases are running in families because families are adopting the same lifestyles 
except for say a very, very, very small percentage of diseases where no matter what someone does, the genetics decide their health outcome. But that is, you know, obviously very, very unfortunate, but it's very rare. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just a bit of a something that we've been led to believe that our genes really shape who we are and we're not taught about the role that epigenetics play or just how much of a difference that our lifestyle can have on our overall health. You know, my my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2016 and it was just another reminder to me of the importance of making sure I'm moving, eating the right foods, staying hydrated, getting good quality sleep, not stressing myself out too much, you know. All of these things have been linked with Alzheimer's and you talk about that in your book as well. Yeah, there are a number of things we can do to lower our risk of cognitive decline and experience you know, more years where our brain is firing on all cylinders. And the great thing is that you, know, you just reeled off a number of them and, and definitely the most important ones. The great thing is that when you lean into those and you make some changes to your diet and you change your approach to exercise and you're doing it a little bit more frequently, even if it's just a brisk walk every day, like the Sharesize, who are neurologist friends of mine in America, they talk a lot about getting at least a 20 or 30 minute brisk walk in every day that's elevating the heart rate uh, and prioritizing sleep, like you just said then, and not just the quantity but how's the quality like? Do we have a sleep routine? You know, that's something that in my life I pay a lot of attention to. And where I was going with this is that you can start leaning into these and making small incremental changes. It doesn't have to be something that you flip upside down overnight. And it's not just about disease, you know, risk reduction long-term. You will actually start feeling better in your day-to-day. Yeah, dude, we just need to go there because I'm so curious. Like what is... Mm sleep routine at the moment? Yeah. So I always get asked, what's my morning routine? Right. And one of the key things I say is that my morning routine really starts with my sleep routine because I can have the best morning to-do list and structure and routine, but if my sleep the night before hasn't been great, none of those things really are able to set me up for a good day. That's what I found personally. It has to start with a really good rest, feeling vital and alive. And so I spent a lot of time working out, well, how do you do that? (laughs) What does that mean? Is it just ticking off the box of seven or eight hours and staying in bed for that long and just praying that it's working? And I realize that's probably not the best approach. While certainly time can be kind of one indicator of sleep hygiene, I think quality of our sleep is affected by many other parts of our life. And so for me personally, I do a handful of different things to improve quality. I don't have any stimulants like caffeine in the second half of my day. I do have coffee in the morning, but after about midday, I will steer clear of that. I try not to eat too close to going to bed. So I try and eat my last meal as there's at least a couple hours before I'm going to bed. And there is some science showing that when you eat very close to going to bed from a metabolic point of view, we're not as good at handling the nutrients in, and digesting that food. And that makes sense because you know, in the few hours before bed, we have melatonin is increasing, cortisol is dropping. 
And so our body from a hormonal position is moving towards a state of rest, not a state of activity and digestion of food for energy and, and et cetera. So I try and do that from a food perspective. I try and get the lights down. And look, it's not perfect, but I would say compared to like five years ago where I wasn't even considering it, now my lights are almost always dimmed and I'm trying to really avoid bright light exposure before going to sleep. I mean, those things alone have a massive impact. Yeah, two more things I'm doing. One, my blinds in my room weren't that great and they were letting in quite a bit of light. So I've actually got better blinds now, which keep the room much darker and I keep the room relatively cool as well. So from a body temperature point of view overnight, the temperature is down and all of those things combined for me. And interestingly, we should talk about sauna here because I do have a sauna and and I have an anecdotal story about this, but you can tell me perhaps if this is something that is common. But all of those things I found, if I get those right, and again, it's not perfect. Some days it's a little bit out, but if I get those right, then I'm set up for success when I wake up the next morning. Now, the anecdotal piece there about sauna is I initially was attracted to sauna use because I came across some research showing it can be beneficial from a cardiovascular point of view. And the research I was looking at, it was looking at improvements in blood pressure and inflammation. So these kind of markers that I was looking at, I was like, well, that seems to be an advantage from a cardiovascular point of view or a benefit that I would like to experience. And so I, at that time, was using a sauna at like a sauna clinic that was local to me. And, you know, I was enjoying it for a few reasons. One, it was kind of a place to focus on breathing and quiet for me. So I was getting some benefits outside of the actual sauna itself. But what I was realizing was if I was doing that sauna more towards the evening, I felt like my sleep was better. Yeah. I wish I had to come across uh, the business that you have because I was looking for a while for outdoor saunas. Right. And I ended up buying one, but long story short, I saw the one that you have, the outdoor sauna you have. And I have to say that that's probably the coolest looking sauna I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. Yeah, they're a pretty cool experience. The barrels, they're pretty cool. But um, yeah, I mean, it's great that you have one nonetheless. And yeah, I mean, from a sleep perspective, anecdotally, we hear that a lot. You've got an infrared sauna, right? Yeah. And does it have color therapy? Yeah. Um, so when we talk about a sleep session, I always talk about sauna in terms of work on the body, right? You were talking about cardiovascular benefits. And so with a sleep session, I typically recommend to not go as hot as usual um, and maybe go a little bit longer. So we're really getting that heat nice and deep. I suggest putting the red color therapy light on, right? So the red's going to help balance the circadian rhythm, tells the brain it's the end of the day, it's time to relax, time to start to release some melatonin. And then when we're in the sauna, the actual physical being in the sauna, getting heated by that infrared, that deep soothing heat, it puts us into a state, into a parasympathetic nervous system state. So it gets us out of fight or flight. It gets us fully resting in our body, connected in and calm. And so through that and then having a nice sweat, not going like 70 degrees, all those things kind of come together. 
and as well as also being in like 30 minutes or 40 minutes of just silence and peace. All those things come together. You're getting that light cardiovascular work to promote really, really good sleep. And so in the evenings, that kind of session is really nice. Come out, have a lukewarm shower. Don't have a cold shower in the evenings because that's too stimulating. Um, and then keep all the lights down in the house. Maybe have some chamomile tea and just chill out for a bit. Yes, you're going to wake up to pee in a couple hours. That's fine. <laughs> Drink some water. And yeah, sleep is a really big one. Yeah, you're right. I wrote a section in the book oh, dedicated to that. And I talk about the overall lifestyle in that chapter, but I probably focus more so on the food choices that we can consider. So let's go there and let's stick maybe with the brain aspect in general, but like what sort of food choices can we be making to assist with cognitive function in general? I think the, the pioneer in this area of research was a researcher named Martha Morris and she essentially dedicated her entire career to looking at the role of nutrition in brain health, specifically looking at cognitive decline and risk factors for developing dementia. And she, through a number of very large studies, looking at large groups of people over time, was able to tease out different parts of our diet that we want to look at and emphasize to improve brain health and then foods that we may want to reduce or minimize our exposure to. And she came up with what's called the mind diet. People may have heard of the DASH diet and definitely will have heard of the Mediterranean diet before. And consistently, the Mediterranean diet throughout the literature has been you know, shown or associated with very, very good health outcomes. And from a sort of description point of view, a well-done Mediterranean diet is considered a plant-based dietary pattern in that it has an abundance of calories from whole plant foods. Yes, it does contain some animal products, but they're much more sort of de-emphasized compared to a standard Western diet. They're definitely not like the hero of the plate all the time, which is what we've done here in, in our society. Now, what Martha did was grab the best parts of the Mediterranean diet and the best parts of the DASH diet and combined them to create the MIND diet, which is essentially almost a completely whole food plant-based diet with a tiny bit of uh, seafood each week. And then there is room in there for some chicken. And she writes in her book that the inclusion of chicken was more from an adherence point of view. She felt that it was going to be too hard for people to adhere to if all animal products were removed. So it wasn't necessarily that the chicken was providing any inherent benefit. But following these large groups of people over decades, she was able to see that people who were adhering to this mind dietary pattern, if they were adhering to it at a very high level, they had around 53% lower risk of developing dementia. And so that is really a huge opportunity for all of us because you can look at the mind diet Look at your current diet now, and in Australia, the current diet for the average person, you know, 70 to 80% of protein every day is coming from animal foods, 42% of calories daily are coming from ultra-processed foods. And you can start to think about, well, what are small changes I can do to nudge more towards a mind diet? And from a practical point of view, I can list off a few of those now, it's trying to Firstly, minimize these ultra-processed foods in our diet that are usually packaged foods with lots of added salt, sugar, and oils. 
and contain a lot of refined carbohydrates where the fiber and the vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals have been stripped away from them. And it's thinking about reducing these in favor of more whole plant foods, whole grains like oats or brown rice or wild rice, fruits, vegetables, and legumes, uh, and nuts and seeds. And at the same time, where you can, in terms of the animal products you're eating, trying to replace some of those with, particularly with legumes, but if you are someone that's eating animal products, even moving from, say, red meat to fatty fish is going to be a step in the right direction. And if you're making those changes and incrementally leaning more and more into that and moving to this more whole food plant-based approach, then you are going to be protecting your brain from cognitive decline. Ultimately, that means you're getting more years operating at a higher level. And look, in terms of our quality of life, our brain function is absolutely crucial. And you would know this. My grandmother suffered from Alzheimer's dementia. It's a horrible disease and it's not something that we would wish upon anyone. So it's nice to know that from a dietary point of view, there are some things we can do that can lower our risk. And some people may be wondering, well, how are these foods lowering risk? What's happening here? And Alzheimer's dementia, it seems like there are a number of risk factors and it's not that we can just say there is one single cause. But what seems to be very consistent is we don't want to have high cholesterol or high blood pressure in our midlife. If we have high cholesterol levels or hypertension, which is high blood pressure uh, in our midlife, we are much more likely to experience dementia in our later years of life. So all of those shifts that I just explained then in terms of food swaps, they will lower cholesterol levels. They will lower blood pressure levels. They will improve our blood glucose control, another one. They will most likely improve our body weight. And all of these things combined, they're all risk factors for dementia. So that's, that's sort of how this is working from a scientific uh, mechanism point of view. And then if I was to, because I'm quite often asked, well, what are the best foods for brain health? <laughs> and I just want to make one thing clear here is there is no single, single superfood that if you just eat that every day, you're going to be protected against dementia. It's very much an overall lifestyle approach. We reeled off a number of those things before, but when it comes to diet, it's the same story. The overall dietary pattern is more important and consistently what that looks like throughout your life than any single one food. However, there are a couple of food groups within the, the plant kingdom that do seem to be particularly beneficial. And they would be berries and dark leafy greens. So my recommendation is that within a sort of plant-based dietary approach, whatever you can adhere to in a way that allows you to maintain that dietary pattern for as long as possible, that's also the key. I don't want someone to go and change their diet in the last two weeks. We've got to play the long game here. Uh, but whatever that looks like, Focusing on including daily consumption of dark leafy greens, you know, spinach, kale, rocket, these kind of greens, 
and berries appears to be particularly beneficial. Is that because of the high antioxidant and anthocyanin content? Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to berries, it's the anthocyanins. The cool thing with actually with berries is that their Martha Morris's work and, and a few other groups showed that if you're regularly consuming berries, your brain, as you get older, operates as if it's much younger. So there's a cognitive decline benefit there and a protective benefit. But we also have research. There was a paper out 2019, I think, or 2020. A group of researchers wanted to see how do berries affect your uh, mental clarity and mental fatigue in day-to-day. So they did this randomized controlled trial, got a group of, of subjects in, split them into two groups. One group had a, a smoothie that contained berries. And then the other group had a smoothie that was matched with the same amount of sugar and calories, but didn't contain berries. And the purpose of that was to make sure that the outcome's not dictated by energy. So the energy in both of these smoothies is the same. What's different is that in the berry one, you've got all of these plant compounds like the anthocyanins. And they were able to show that within the six-hour period after consuming that berry smoothie, those that were fortunate in the study to get the berries had significantly less cognitive fatigue and significantly better recalls. So if you, you know, in your day-to-day, you're in business meetings or you're on a podcast or whatever it is, and sort of mental acuity is important and recall, uh, then adding in some berries into your morning smoothie or as a snack or somehow into your lunch um, can be a really good idea. It just goes to show the power of fruits and food that is created by nature for us, right? Just some berries giving us extra cognitive ability over a number of hours is incredible. For me, I just can't help but go to the next step and say, so why wouldn't you want to do that all the time? Because it's so abundant in what it can do for our body. To me, it just it's the logical next step after hearing those sort of science experiments. And some of those long-term studies where they showed benefit of consuming berries, we're looking at, say, regular consumers, maybe consuming one serve a day compared to those rarely. So you're seeing significant benefit at just one serving a day. You know, what are the benefits that are up for grabs if you're having two or three? So I agree with you. And I think the really important thing that uh, speaks to what you were just talking there about whole foods and the compounds in them is back to what I said earlier, 42% of the average Australian's calories coming from ultra-processed foods. And ultra-processed food, we strip out so much of these phytochemicals and nutrition that exists in the whole fruit or whole plant food. And to date, we have been able to identify about 5,000 phytochemicals that exist in plant foods. But it's believed that there are over 20,000 right? So there are thousands and thousands of these compounds that we actually are yet to even identify. And so we do need to ask that question, how can these ultra processed foods compete with that? Yes, they can compete on a hyper palatability and indulgence level, but can they really, really compete on a health level and you know, setting us up for, for good health as long as possible? So how can someone, you know, I hear from people who listen to this podcast and some of them I know quite well and some, some people I've never met before and I've spoken about fasting a lot. I eat raw fruits myself uh, and soft leafy greens. 
I've talked about this stuff a lot and however, I still know there's people that listen who still eat a standard Australian diet. Where can they actually start with something like this? And, you know, I really like your piece around don't go to whole food plant-based overnight <laughs> and you can't just do it 100%. There can be some lenience in there. Like what's the best way to kind of move out of where people are currently into this sort of lifestyle? Yeah, so from a neuroscience or behavioral science point of view, it's very clear in order to establish new habits for most of us, for most of us, there is a rare person who can do a lot overnight, but for most of us, it's about small incremental changes and also about not trying to change too many habits at once. If you're trying to improve sleep, food, exercise, and all of these are completely new behaviors, new habits, and you're setting crazy goals. I love the ambition, but I just think that we have enough science to show that that's probably not the most effective way if you're looking to bring changes into your life that are life-lasting. So let's think about, for example, weight gain and weight loss because people can relate to this. Usually weight gain occurs over a decade or more for people and it starts to creep up. But you know, human nature, when we want to tackle it, we all of a sudden want to lose that weight within a week. And so, look, you can go and do that. But if you do that, it's very unlikely that the changes in your behavior are going to actually have gone from a conscious behavior to an unconscious behavior, which is a habit. And ultimately, if you're not converting it from conscious to unconscious, then you're not going to sustain it. Why? Because it's too much effort. Our habits are habits. They are unconscious and they're actually very easy. And that's why we lean on them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the role of habits. What we want to do is convert new behaviors into habits that are serving our health. And the way to do that is to start very, very small, small little changes. So if I'm working with someone and they're coming to me and they do have 42% of their calories from ultra processed foods, I'm not trying to change that overnight to zero. I'm going to look at some of those foods they're eating and there might be two or three little simple swaps that I'm going to work with them on to help move them in the right direction. For example, it might be that someone comes to me and they're drinking Coca-Cola every day. And also focusing on the addition can be helpful rather than just restriction. So in this instance, the habit is they're drinking their soda every single day. What I would try and do with that person is suggest a healthier alternative to the Coca-Cola. Let's say a kombucha which might not be a perfect drink. There might be some that still have you know, added sugars and what, whatever, but it's a step in the right direction. And for that person, I might be able to get them to, as a simple swap, to change that behavior to a daily kombucha. And perhaps it's 15, 20 grams less sugar in that beverage. And that's a small win for that person. And so that is one example, but people can look at their own diet, the, the foods that they're eating regularly, and think about those small swaps. Something else I might do with people is look at another simple swap could be uh, perhaps you're drinking cow's milk every day, which 
is if it's full fat, it's very high in, in saturated fat. And that's something that we want to minimize in our diet for good cardiovascular health. And as we said before, to keep our cholesterol down, which affects our cognitive health long-term, it might be a simple case of finding a plant-based milk for that person that they enjoy. They can then just replace like for like and use that on their cereal, in their coffee, in their smoothies. And this is my approach with working with people is step-by-step just finding little different swaps in their diet. And you'd be surprised. You make these small changes and each week you focus on say one. And if you're feeling confident the next week, add another. And the next week you will be so surprised by say six months time, how many changes you've been able to make. And you will have nudged your overall diet into a, a much more healthy dietary pattern. So that's my main approach with people is about taking it slow, looking for quick wins, simple swaps. And you know, I, I speak about that mainly in part three in my book. Uh, but in my experience, that's the best way to get these things to stick. I love that. Nice, slow, incremental wins. Yeah. And then I imagine that people... Uh, they get inspired, they get excited. Oh, wow, like even just in the last three weeks, I've changed these things. And guess what? They're probably starting to feel a bit better too. And that's a key point is that if you make some small changes and you feel success, what you've done is you have built trust within yourself. We know from behavioral science and neuroscience that trust in our environment is absolutely crucial in order to achieve our goals. And so I think you hit the nail on the head there. That comes down to satisfaction. And that can actually be why having something on your fridge or in your phone where you're ticking off can be quite satisfying for people because it's a marker of progress and achievement. And sometimes we need that feeling of success right now and then as we perform a habit to tie the two together. Because otherwise, if you think about it, the success that we're talking about here, say cognitive decline, you're not experiencing that for decades. So you have to somehow, as you're introducing these new habits, feel some success in your day-to-day. This isn't about starving you of joy. These changes should come with a feeling of reward. And there are a number of ways to sort of introduce some reward. For example, I know some people will do set up a healthy habit, for example. And if they're achieving that healthy habit, then at the end of the week, if they've ticked it all off, they might put $50 into a certain account. Love that. And then that account is accruing towards perhaps a retreat that they're going to go on at the end of the year, something that's still tied to their overall goal, which is to be a healthier person. Um, and, you know, a healthier, more balanced, more peaceful person. So that's another strategy, but there are a number of different ways of, and I encourage people to think about that is with these new habits, if it's eating more dark leafy greens or eating more legumes, how can you introduce some sense of reward and satisfaction with that new behavior? Because if you can tie those two together, that's going to help them stick. Yeah, I like that. And making the reward not like, oh, well, I've done this for three weeks or four weeks now, so I'm going to go out to like a big, boozy, red, heavy dinner or something, right? 
Yeah. So the reason why that doesn't work is because that's counterproductive. It's shifting you in the opposite direction to why you're trying to introduce those new health behaviors. So you're right. That reward has to work with the new lifestyle, the new identity that you're trying to build. You know, that's a, that's a super important point. Yeah. You know, Tony Robbins talked about that. When we're building a new habit, we need to get it into the autonomic nervous system. We need to engage our physical body with a positive emotion associated with that habit. So then we keep going back to that habit because it feels good and I'm empowered and because I'm putting some money aside, you know, and then we want more of that and we start associating those good feelings with having the kombucha instead of the Coke or, you know what, I've stopped eating red meat now and I'm really minimizing my fish and I'm feeling good and I'm putting some money aside. Like it's all those good vibes, you know. Yeah, yeah, we've got to keep the good vibes up. One of the really good things about making these changes because it is food and because it is our health, people will feel better physically and they might start experiencing that they're feeling more energy or they are sleeping better or they're losing a little bit of weight if that's right for them. And so there can be some sort of reward and satisfaction in that as well. But to add to one other thing that I do recommend people think about is other than the these sort of small changes and tying it to some sort of reward is seasoning food. I think sometimes when we're introducing new foods, particularly say beans or tofu or tempeh, if these are foreign for people, we can expect them to taste really good straight out of the can or out of the packet. And I liken this to, I guess, cooking let's say chicken breast, most people would prepare that in some way. They would marinate it. If you just cooked chicken by itself in a pan uh, and ate it, it probably wouldn't taste that great. Uh, It's been a long time since I've had chicken, but from my memories, you need to marinate it. Uh, And the same thing applies with tofu or beans or whatever. Just think of these as sort of nutrient carriers and they're also a bit of a sponge that will soak up flavor and use herbs and spices and condiments to bring in whatever flavor combination it is that you like, be it Thai or Mexican or Japanese. The same rules apply. You're just using a different medium. Yeah, really good point. Really good point. I just love frying up um, like some tempeh, a little bit of garlic, some oil, some paprika. Fried. Oh, so good. Making me hungry. Yeah. <laughs> that was some rice. and Oh, it's so, so good. Yeah, really important point. And actually worth noting too uh, is that it's an opportunity as we start to eat differently like this, we start to feel a bit better. It is an opportunity to start to learn how to cook and prepare food that we haven't perhaps cooked and prepared in the past. We actually found my partner and myself that her especially, she became like an amazing cook when we started eating whole food plant-based because we had to learn how to make this food taste incredible, you know, and you learn more about the plant kingdom and you learn more about food combinations and it's a really, really good opportunity to do that. Cooking is obviously a really, really handy life skill. You know, don't let that be a barrier to people to, oh, you know, I don't really know how to cook or... I don't know how to make it taste good. It's like, we'll learn, you know, and you can make amazing food. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, there's a little bit of, I guess, effort there and investment and time and learning some of those skills. And a lot of that is because we have fallen into a lifestyle of convenience and relying on the ultra processed, already prepared foods or the Uber Eats and the Deliveroo. And, uh, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, 
I think uh, it'd be safe to say that the average person's ability to cook has probably gone downhill. But you're right. That little bit of upfront investment of time and effort to pick up these skills is absolutely invaluable. And with a little bit of time and practice, it doesn't take too long to build up your confidence. And something that I also like to emphasize to people is that it can seem overwhelming to think about eating completely differently. But if you were to break down how you eat currently right now, I bet from a cooking perspective, most people probably have five, six meals they rotate. Most people, I would say. Maybe there are some cooks and and people out there that just love cooking and they're always cooking new things. But for the vast majority of people, it's a rotation. You know, Monday nights is something, Tuesdays is something. Definitely in families where people are time poor, they don't want to have to think too much about a new recipe. So same thing applies with this. I don't think you need to feel overwhelmed. It could just be about learning a new recipe a week or a fortnight at the beginning. And once you have five or 10 of those in your sort of repertoire, then you're set. You're set. You don't need to be thinking about getting 20, 30, 40. Just keep it simple at the start. And I know from working with many, many people that you can learn to cook with plants and make them taste delicious without being a sort of hardcore chef. Yeah, I love that. Really, really valid point. I want to shift gears for a second and talk a little bit about the environmental impact of eating whole food plant-based. And the reason I want to touch on this is recently Seaspiracy came out and if you watch this, to me, you couldn't continue to eat food from the ocean because it was so compelling. And I understand there's always other sides to the story, but it was just really compelling. And I said kind of jokingly, like, how could anyone watch this and ever eat fish again? And I've since met a lot of people who have watched it and then I'll say, are you still eating fish? And like, yeah. Okay. And so my question is, and I don't like asking these questions, but I I feel like you're going to have a really good answer. Like when you explain to people that the impact that eating fish or eating meat has on the impact, like what are the main points that you address to help someone understand that if we continue to eat this way, we're really putting our planet in a bad position. The first thing is awareness, which is why those documentaries are good, right? And most people are, are living in a way where they're not aware of the system that they're actually in. Mm. The majority of people, and it takes a documentary like that to sort of pull the curtains back and show people, and it can be very, very confronting when you've been living your life in a certain way and not realizing what you're voting for. And hey, I did that for decades and (laughs) everyone has. So awareness is the first step, but you're right in that awareness doesn't always result in immediate change. It doesn't. I have the same sort of anecdotal stories as you, but over time, when people are exposed to the kind of information from Seaspiracy and from multiple other sources, I believe it starts to stack on top of each other. And that certain person who maybe isn't making immediate change, I believe it has planted a seed. And so, you know, speaking personally, I have a number of friends who have seen the information that I've been sharing for a long, long, long time and still haven't been able to make sort of significant changes to their diet but in the last year, in particular, actually after Seaspiracy, a couple of them did end up making big changes. So I think 
everyone is on their own sort of different journey and has an entire lifetime of different experiences that affects the way that they see the world. So sometimes it can be really frustrating. You know, you watch Seaspiracy or you read a book and you think, why isn't everyone making the change right now? But I think we're all kind of looking at that bit of material through a slightly different lens. One thing that's super, super important and that I find that really often motivates people to look deeply at their actions is not just seeing something like Seaspiracy, but is also understanding what are their values and beliefs. So being so self-aware of what your personal values and beliefs are and then understanding now are those actions that I'm making on a daily basis, are they in line with those? And if they're not, and you are someone who can get quiet and can think about that, then it's a very uncomfortable feeling because ultimately in your mind, this is the type of person I am, this is what I stand for, but then every single day you're acting in a contradictory manner to that, that stacks up. And over time, I think that ultimately wears people down and you end up shifting your behaviors in a way that does align with those values and beliefs purely because it makes you feel more peaceful. It feels right. So can we snap our fingers and get everyone to tap into that? I don't know. Like I, I think about this all the time, Alex. For a long time, I was just autopilot out there spending my dollars completely disconnected from the impact of those dollars and also disconnected from myself. So I had to get the awareness of firstly where my dollars were going, what system was that a part of. And then I also had to be aware of who I was and what was important for me and then how to align those. So that's sort of one conversation. The other conversation is, can you just change the food system in ways like, for example, plant-based meat, innovations and you know various different innovations and categories like plant-based milk and whatever that are coming out and can you just compete on flavor and experience and then the mass market actually doesn't have to think about it and make a decision say for the environment they're just making the decision because it is convenient it is tasty and it's the right price point and you know part of me thinks that we're going to experience a bit of a mix of both of those, but maybe it is big shifts in the food environment that has the biggest effect. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle, actually, coming from the other side. So in some ways, there may be many people who actually remain in that autopilot, remain plugged into the not conscious of where their dollars and their votes, as you said, are going. But all of a sudden those dollars in their spend are going towards things that are much better for the environment, like plant-based milks or plant-based meats and those sort of things. So they perhaps haven't made that full conscious choice yet. I'm torn because I feel like time is running out from a climate change point of view and we don't have long enough to sit around and wait for everyone to connect with that and just go and make these new develop these new habits. But also I feel like there's a huge learning opportunity for humanity as a whole to actually go through that process. And if we just change the food environment, we actually rob people, communities, populations of that opportunity. And so I am torn on that. 
Uh, and I end up leaning more towards we just need whatever innovation and solution we can get because time is ticking and it's definitely not on our side. And maybe then there will be a way after that once we've been able to solve climate change for humanity to learn that same lesson. Mm. I mean, it comes back to what you said, right? Everyone's on their own journey. And God, I'm going to sound cold sounding this, but I was chatting with um, my nonno yesterday and I said, some people it's not part of their journey to have a health awakening if you want to call it that or to discover that and for some people they'll eat the way the system has them eat and they'll get cancer and they'll die early and that's part of their journey you know and so yeah I mean there's a lot of people who that is their journey and then a lot of people who like yourself uh, seekers of the truth and want to learn more and experience more. So, yes, I think you're right. Maybe it does end up just having to come from both angles and whatever's going to get us to save the planet because time's running out. Yeah, it is. I wrote in the book, I think from a climate change point of view, most people are sort of familiar with the Paris Agreement or have maybe heard of it and greenhouse gas emissions, definitely, I think most people are aware of now, which is essentially these gases that trap heat and increase the temperature of our planet. And there's sort of a bit of a marker out there, the pre-industrial temperature, we use that as a reference point. And if we go one and a half degrees above that, then that's a level where we will see huge numbers of climate refugees. These are humans, our fellow humans, who can no longer live in their geographical location because it's just unsafe from a weather point of view or from a food security point of view. Uh, we will see increased intensity of wildfires like nothing we've seen before, which is quite scary given what we went through last year. We'll see more deforestation. We'll see more ocean dead zones, these areas of dead zones where life can't exist. We'll actually at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels see 70 to 90% of all coral reefs completely deteriorated around the world. Again, crazy. These are very biodiverse areas of the ocean. We'll start to see food and water shortages in developed countries. In developed countries, that's hard to fathom. You know, we've had water shortages and food insecurity in developing countries for a long, long time. And that's very sad. It's hard to connect with that for many people. But to hear that it could be a reality in developed countries, I think that should be getting people thinking, wow, I need to pay attention here. So here's the deal. We're already at 1 to 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. If we hit 1.5, everything that I just explained is what we'll see. And that's why the Paris Agreement in 2015 laid out all of these goals and objectives so that we can avoid hitting that 1.5 degree mark, which unfortunately, based on how we've all reacted, seems actually inevitable and we probably will hit 1.5 degrees. And then the next challenge is not letting that get to two degrees. So there are a number of different solutions that need to take place around the world from all countries to help us avoid this. And why are we doing this? Well, because a lot of this is very immediate. We will experience it in our lifetime, but also this is the future for kids and for humans that are not born today. 
And given we have some science around what we can do to improve planetary health, I think all of us who are in a position to should be acting in a way that assists with that. And so energy is obviously a huge, huge important factor and changing the way that we create energy and looking at fossil fuels. But food is arguably just as important. And often it is underestimated how important it is. And it's important for a few reasons, but I guess at a high level, we've had now multiple very high quality published papers looking at sustainable food systems that have all concluded that the cheapest, the fastest, and the easiest action on a personal level, on an individual level, to mitigate climate change, to restore biodiversity, to preserve fresh water, is to shift to a plant-predominant or a plant-exclusive diet. And there are a few reasons, and I can quickly summarize this for people as to why that's the case. Uh, overall, the production of animal foods is very, very inefficient. Very inefficient. For example, to produce 100 grams of protein from beef requires 74 times more land than tofu. And it produces 25 times more greenhouse gas emissions. So the reason why I mentioned the land there is because often we just focus on greenhouse gas emissions. And yes, they're important. They're trapping the heat. But what's also we have to consider is how much land are we clearing to make food? Because when we're clearing land, we're actually reducing the Earth's natural carbon sinks, these forests that actually trap carbon and pull it down and cool our planet. So there is a twofold effect. It's not just the emissions from the production of the food, but it's what's the carbon cost opportunity? What are we missing out on if we were using this land in another way? And so the fact that animal foods require so much more land to produce the same amount of protein or calories means that as it stands today, our agriculture system across the world is using far, far more land than we would otherwise need. And so if we were to shift back to what I said earlier to plant predominant or plant exclusive dietary patterns across the board, we would free up so much land. Our presumption is that all this land is for food production. And that's where we went wrong. There is so much land we could free up and return back to natural ecosystems, woody savannas or forests or thick grasslands. And not only do these bring, you know, store carbon, but it brings back the food system and it brings back biodiversity. And a very shocking fact that I saw, I wrote about this in the book, is that Today, right now, as it is today, of all mammals on planet Earth, only 4% of those are wild. Only 4% of all mammals on Earth are wild. Crazy. 36% are humans. And 60% of all mammals right now on planet Earth are livestock. So we have completely obliterated all of these animal species and destructed natural ecosystems in order to create you know, enough of these animal products that you know, meets the demand, you know, bacon, salami, all of this stuff. And the kicker 
on this that I think people need to understand as well is that it's not just the land where the animals are. In most cases where it's factory farmed, we have to produce food for those animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is terribly inefficient. For example, in a factory farm, if you feed a cow 100 calories, you only get three calories of beef out the other side. And so you lose 97 of the calories or 97% of the calories. And where does that go? Well, the animal burns it just being alive, uh, moving around, but it also goes into growing eyeballs and skin and bones, things that we don't eat. And so it's terribly inefficient, these factory farms. We're literally tearing down forests to grow the food to feed these animals. And then we're losing so much of the calories through that system. And then sometimes it comes up, people say, well, what about the alternative grass-fed beef? And we need to understand that grass-fed beef has its own problems. There's a few important things to sort of understand with grass-fed beef. The first is that factory farms are really good at one thing, and that is growing a lot of beef really quickly. And in fact, per kilogram of food, grass-fed beef produces more greenhouse gas emissions. And the reason for that is that that animal takes usually twice as long to grow to its full size when it's not in as intense conditions. But the other thing that's important to understand here is that these grass-fed systems for example, take Australia. We always hear about grass-fed beef being, you know, sometimes people claim that it's good for the environment. This industry is the number one driver of deforestation in Australia today as of 2021. Still today is the number one cause of why our forests in this country are being torn down. So when you're buying grass-fed beef, you are voting for that system, for a system that is tearing down these forests, these natural carbon sinks, that we actually rely on to cool our planet. And one of the worst states for this is actually Queensland, where 73% of all of the deforestation occurring in Queensland is linked to beef production. So there are a number of reasons why it's a good idea to make swaps in our diet and shift away from these animal products and eat more whole plant foods. But in summary, freeze up land, it reduces greenhouse gas emissions, It can help us restore biodiversity and it will also, and I didn't touch on this, but it will also lead to uh, preserving fresh water. Yeah, I was thinking that as well. I mean, we didn't even talk about water there. I mean, some of those stats are just absolutely incredible. Uh, Mm. And to just, Queensland's such a beautiful place and it's just been pulled apart, you know, so we can eat some beef. And we didn't even touch on the effects on water and irrigation and all of the stuff that's going on around that is just out of this world it's sad it's uh right now if you look at this was a report that came out last year the deforestation right now annually it's believed that 50 million native animals including koalas are killed from land clearing just in queensland and new south wales alone and so we're doing so much damage, so much damage to our environment. And for what is, is the question is for what, and it's to fuel our appetite 
back to bacon and salami and, and pork. And, and what I hope is clear in my book is we don't have to eat these foods for good health. In fact, if we can move away from them, we can better our health. So there is a win-win opportunity up for grabs. And it's just sad what's happening in terms of how we're producing food. I think that one of the best statistics that summarizes all of this right now is that for all of this destruction and loss of life and greenhouse gas emissions coming from animal agriculture, animal agriculture takes up 83% of all land dedicated to agriculture right now. However, it only produces us 18% of our calories. Like think about that for a moment. It's responsible for all of that destruction, loss of life takes up more than three quarters of all the land dedicated to food production, but it's only giving us 18% of our calories. It is so inefficient, so, so inefficient. And, and actually, that's why these big meat companies in America are investing in plant-based meat alternatives because they understand the inefficiencies. You know, for a lot of these companies, it's not necessarily about saving the world and envi- the environment. They're looking at their P&L and bottom line. And if you can be more efficient, that equals more profitability. Mm, yeah, spot on. At least there's some sort of move in the right direction there. Simon, our time has come to an end. I feel like we could talk for three hours actually. (laughs) But I'm guilty. I didn't put enough time aside for that. So maybe we'll have to get back together again and and kick off from where we were. Yeah, we can do that. If people want to find out about you or your book, where can they find you? Yeah, so if they are not sick of hearing my voice, they can jump on over to the Plant Proof podcast and that's where I sit down with scientists and doctors and dietitians and we talk about food and and also climate scientists and uh, environmental researchers and we just talk about the impact of different food choices on our health and the planet. So if you're looking for more sort of information to increase your confidence with those kind of choices in your life, then that might be something that you want to explore. I'm most active on social media on Instagram, which is at plant underscore proof. You can visit my website, plantproof.com, and I have a a newsletter I often send out with little bits and pieces on new science and um, new studies that come out. And of course, if you want to grab the book, it's available at any bookstore across Australia and, and also all the online bookstores. And the title is The Proof is in the Plants. Lovely. And as I said at the start, it is a cracking book and you delve into the science so, so well on all of these things that we've only briefly scratched what's left of the iceberg, the tip of the icebergs. Um, we've only briefly touched the top of them um, in our amazing conversation today and you really go in depth in that book and it's a really, really great read for anyone who's even just mildly thinking, you know what, maybe I will give this a go. You know, I'm open to this now to eating more whole food plant-based and taking my health to the next level because, guys, that's what it's all about, (laughs) experiencing more of what this amazing life has to offer us, even when we're in lockdown, even when the world is going upside down around us and we're pulling trees down and killing animals, we can feed 18% of our calories. (laughs) God, i got to let that one sit. Um, Thank you so much for coming on today Simon it's been an absolute pleasure to wrap up finally my last question to you is what is the sweatiest you have ever been (laughs) 
it's hard to go past being in a sauna, but I feel like that's a cop out. So that's a cop out. So other than that, and and actually tonight I will try turning the temperature down a little bit and I'll put the red light on. Um, try and sit in there for 30, 40 minutes. That sounds like a good idea. Uh, look, probably, to be honest, some of the sweatiest, most uncomfortable um, experiences I've had were, was when I was backpacking around South America and staying in hostels with zero air conditioning in the in the midst of the summer months. And uh, on a few of those days, uh, after getting far too much sun surfing, coming back and being in a, a room, a dormitory room with 10 other guys, uh, no fans, no air conditioning and extreme heat, um, that certainly resulted in some very, very sweaty nights, that's for sure. Love it. I have a feeling that might have been the sweatiest and also the smelliest room going Yeah. Around. Yeah. Gosh. Oh, memories. <laughs> you eating uh, plant-based back then? No, that was back when I was uh, 20. So a little bit before. Certainly wasn't eating plant-based in Argentina. That's for sure. That's a, that's a city that loves their steaks. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like barbecue, right? Yeah. A lot of barbecue and very, very, very thick steaks from memory. So uh, I have heard though that that is actually starting to change, which is interesting. Yeah. That's really good to hear. Well, thank you so much again. Have a cracking day, mate. And um, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. 